Welcome to Dirty Drinks, where infectious disease and infection prevention professionals get together and talk about everything dirty that keeps them up at night. Join co-hosts Dr. Rick Starlin and Sarah Stream as they talk to other professionals about the dirty things that they think about every day. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the next episode of Dirty Drinks. How are you, Dr. Starlin? I am doing very well. How about you, Sarah? Not too bad. Enjoying the fall weather, starting yeah, to, to get there. It did feel like fall this morning. It was, it was really nice. I just wonder if it'll last. Yeah, I'm sure we'll get, you know, second summer and all of that. Seems like Labor Day weekend's always a roast, but I think uh, this weekend is not going to be too bad. So we will see. Yeah. Starting well, to feel a little bit like football, right? <laughs> I think it is. And you are the football expert. I know nothing. So I don't know if we're experts or just armchair experts or not. But today we have Andrew Watkins uh, joining us, which is super exciting. Yeah, it is. Um, Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Uh, definitely agree on the, the weather. It was nice to see some high 70s, mid 80s going into the weekend. So pretty exciting. Yeah. And just for all our podcast listeners, today I was actually the last person to join this meeting, which doesn't usually happen. And I joined in to this big discussion about football. So these two have a lot to talk about in regards to football. Yeah, he's a he's an SEC expert, so uh, you know, boo on the conference for you know pilfering away other schools. But you know, I guess it's the it's it's the way things are these days. But yes, it's it's great to have him and super excited. He is a pharmacist here at uh, Nebraska Medicine UNMC and works closely with the ICAP team. Um, so we're happy to discuss kind of what his role is and how he evolved his career into the direction that it's taken. So Andrew, do you want to tell us um, what your official title is and then kind of how you got into that role? Yeah, so I think my official title is uh, Pharmacist Focused Population <laughs> with regards to antimicrobial stewardship, but really it boils down to I'm an antimicrobial stewardship outreach pharmacist. Uh, so I kind of have two different hats. Uh, half of my FTE is dedicated to the Nebraska Medicine Remote Antimicrobial Stewardship support program. And so that's really more involved in contracting with uh, smaller hospitals like critical access hospitals who may not have the resources to actually hire a full-time infectious disease pharmacist uh, to actually help them establish their programs, you know, policies and protocols and guidance documents and make sure that they're uh, meeting the core elements and, you know, things that they have to do from an accreditation standpoint. Uh, and so contracting with those hospitals and helping them to do that. Whereas the other hat uh, is in a similar vein, but uh, slightly different as well, is with the Nebraska ASAP program. And so it's kind of the, the sister organization to ICAP in that it's the Antimicrobial Stewardship Assessment and Promotion Program. And so it is a uh, statewide CDC grant funded organization that the main goal is to improve antimicrobial use kind of across the state, both in acute care facilities as well as long-term care and outpatient facilities. So a lot of talking to individual facilities with any you know, stewardship questions they have or issues that come up 
um, and you know, similar things in that regard, education, webinars, uh, along those veins. That's awesome. And I know just working with you over the past uh, year or so, I think we started about the same time, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Um, we did. Uh, you're a very important link in the chain of this whole infectious disease infection prevention system that we have going on. And it's been awesome to see how that kind of falls into place with some facilities that we work with. Yeah, I think it's a really good partnership. And I think ICAP and ASAP are able to work very synergistically and uh, both help each other along. So it's been fun. It's hard to believe it's only been a year. I've, when you said that, it made me realize that <laughs> that was, I remember walking by the cubicle when you were doing your own board and I was like, oh, you know, hey, somebody new, I'm not the only new face here. Um, so <laughs> that was, the last year has felt like about three years, so. Yeah, definitely. It definitely has, I agree. So we're gonna talk about all that stuff that you just mentioned with, uh, you know, we use those words every day, but I think some of our listeners uh, would be good to explain exactly what you do. But uh, uh, before we get to that, let's tell it, where did you come from? How did you get to being this uh, pharmacy role that you have now? What uh, kind of training did you have to have, et cetera? Because you're the first pharmacist that we've had on this. So this is super exciting. I, I mean, we're, we're having lots of first. I was the first one on the show today and now we have a pharmacist on the show. So this is great. <laughs> Breaking new ground. Yeah, well, if you can't tell from my great northern accent, uh, I am from Mississippi originally. So I was born in uh, Greenville, Mississippi, which is a town of about 30,000, right, uh, where Louisiana, Arkansas, and Mississippi meet, kind of right there in the uh, Delta. Uh, did my undergrad training at the University of Mississippi, or Ole Miss, uh, and then did my pharmacy school there as well, and then graduated there 2018. Did my first year uh, pharmacy practice residency at St. Dominic Hospital. It's a four or 500 bed community hospital there in Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, and then for second year to specialize in infectious disease, uh, you know, actually went through uh, the, you know, the full interview process and interviewed at a bunch of different facilities, uh, you know, one in Mississippi, some, you know, in other states, and then happened upon Nebraska Medicine. Uh, and Scott Bergman here and was really impressed with the hospital and the residency program uh, and you know I thought everything was really well established here so came here to complete my training in that loved it it was a great year and then when I finished that last year in 2020 is when I was able to start in this newly approved role um, that again we do half with ASAP half with the med center. That's so awesome. you're telling us that pharmacists have residencies too? Pharmacists do have residencies, yeah. So it's nothing that is required. So uh, typically pharmacists will go through the residency process if they want to practice in uh, hospital settings, you know, especially if they want to be kind of more frontline clinical staff. Um, and so the best way to, to kind of achieve that is to complete pharmacy residencies first years. There are also some for like ambulatory care um, for, you know, more like clinic-based pharmacists. And then there are some for administration even, uh, and there may be some for IT. So a bunch of different options there. And then after you do that first year, you can decide if you want to do a second year to specialize in uh, you know, infectious diseases or transplant, oncology, kind of a host of different specialties there. So a much shorter process uh, than you know, physician and medical residencies, but still a long process. That's great. I'm curious. Um... Why did you want to get into being a pharmacist? Were you just like one day, like I love drugs, and so <laughs> that's exactly how that. I. Have. <laughs> no, it's actually a funny story. My dad uh, was an accountant uh, for a uh, 
grain terminal here, at, or not here in Mississippi. And I'd always just said, I'm, I'm going to be an accountant. That was kind of my, my proposed path in life. And I believe it was senior year of high school where I was going through the application process and there was a tab where the University of Mississippi has an early entry program uh, that lets you go ahead and actually apply. And, you know, if you're accepted through that, then from day one, you're part of the pharmacy program where you still have to go through the same undergrad, but uh, you kind of have more access to the pharmacy school. And so in that process, I said, you know, keep my options open. I may as well apply to that, you know, science and math seemed to be okay for me in high school. That was something that was interesting. So went to their interview day and kind of the, the whole orientation deal for that and realized that, wow, this is something that was really interesting to me. I'll give it a try. And you kind of even from like the first weeks and months having the basic science courses, I was like, oh, wait, no, this is for me. Like I, I couldn't imagine doing finance as much. Like this is really kind of clicks a lot more um, than I expected it to. And kind of from there just continued on. And the, you know, the more you get through pharmacy school, the, the more I, I tended to like it. So, you know, a lot of people going, even including me going in, I was like, you know, you go to pharmacy school, you're a pharmacist, you go work at, you know, chain down the street. And that's, you know, you're just the local chain pharmacist. And it's like every month, every year you learn that there are so many different paths within pharmacy. I, I didn't even know about hospital pharmacists and, you know, nuclear pharmacists and all the different types of pharmacy practice areas there are. So it was really interesting to kind of learn more about that. There are nuclear pharmacists. There are, yeah, you know, all the nuclear scans you've got, somebody's got to actually compound all that and, you know, have the training to handle those hazardous drugs and put them together. That sounds amazing. I'm just throwing that out there. Yeah, it, it, was, <laughs> it, was, it was on my, my short list, uh, a little bit down from infectious diseases, but it was something that always sounded really interesting if uh, I didn't pursue that path. And that's that's a great information because I think everybody thinks of a pharmacist as just their pharmacist that's sitting at uh, their local pharmacy and helps out with advice on what meds to get and everything else. And obviously that's a you know a critical role in healthcare. But uh, there's so many other pharmacists that are doing things more behind the scenes uh, as far as uh, in hospitals or even in regulatory roles and and uh, developing protocols and things like that. You, uh, and you mentioned that you've done a lot of that in your role as well trying to help critical access hospitals, um, as well as through um, ASAP with uh, programs at, uh, you know, even a little bit larger hospitals. So what, what's that process look like for you? Yeah, and so really it starts by, you know, making these connections with facilities. <clears throat> so again, when we say critical access, we're talking like 25 beds or less. And so, you know, some of these facilities may only have five patients in their hospital on a given day, you know, very small censuses. And so it's important that, you know, even with that size and maybe <clears throat> a lack of resources that you know accompanies that they still have to have the same uh meet the same criteria for stewardship they're kind of laid out by the cdc core elements and so it's just a set of seven kind of minimum criteria that hospitals need and so you know our big role is to come in and help them assess that and make sure that you know they're meeting every one of those seven core elements and, you know, I, I like to take it a step further and not just, you know, are you barely clear in the bar? Are you meeting these? But, you know, how well are you meeting these? Like, how can you optimize and be sure that you're beyond meeting and you're actually, you know, going above and beyond to, to have the, I guess, most optimal stewardship program in place that you can? We've mentioned stewardship several times throughout this. And so I think it's probably a good idea to tell our listeners what we exactly mean by stewardship. We use this word 
pretty much on a daily basis, but um, it's actually very important for anti-infectives in general as one of our big strategies to try to preserve anti-infectives going forward so that we don't run into too much resistance problems, which is one of the key components of this. But in your mind, what do you see uh, for antimicrobial stewardship and how would you define it to somebody that maybe isn't involved in it? Yeah, I would say that antimicrobial stewardship is just the process of being sure we're using the appropriate antibiotic to treat a given patient. And so, you know, sometimes that consists of, hey, you know, we're on a really broad antibiotic. It, it can, you know, cover and kill a lot of different bacteria, you know, but we know we've got X bacteria uh, that, you know, could be treated with something a lot more targeted. So let's, instead of using this really broad agent that has, you know, really broad, broad spread impacts, uh, you know, on in your intestinal flora and others uh, that could potentially breed resistance that we can use this more narrow agent. So again, like you said, to uh, prevent the development of resistance. Uh, but on the flip side of that, it's not always just, hey, let's stop antibiotics or, hey, let's shorten durations. It's also making sure that the appropriate antibiotic is on. And so there are cases, you know, in the process of doing stewardship where you've got a patient who may be on therapy and is growing uh, bacteria that's resistant to that. And so, you know, the part of the stewardship pharmacist or stewardship uh, personnel would be to escalate and make sure that we're actually having an antibiotic that covers that pathogen. So really just optimizing antibiotic use is a good, you know, three word definition for stewardship. So the days of just getting antibiotics just in case are probably, that was probably the wrong approach. That was definitely the wrong approach. And I hope that that's an approach that uh, is on its decline. One of the major tools of your trade is an antibiogram, correct? And so right. how, what is that? And, we, and you, if you ever, anybody works with an infectious disease doctor, they may hear us talk about these things, but most of the population won't have any idea of what exactly that is. It sounds like some kind of a bad scan or something, you know? So what, what is that? How do you use that? Yeah, so antibiograms are really helpful tools that give us an idea of the percent chance that a certain antibiotic will work on a certain bacteria. And so I guess to take a step back, you know, when patients first come in with a suspected infection, we have no idea what's causing that infection. And so you've got to go through the process of ordering cultures and, you know, you can't just wait until cultures result two or three days later to start antibiotics. Uh, you kind of have to start something on the front end that you think will have a pretty decent shot at covering the bacteria um, and then, you know, kind of target. And so antibiograms do a good job of taking your actual institution specific data, uh, looking at, you know, say last year, um, how many isolates of each type of bacteria did you have, uh, each specific species, uh, and then what were the susceptibility patterns of those. And so you know, it may show that for E. coli, you've got a 92% susceptibility rate to ceftriaxone, for instance, or, you know, for Pseudomonas, you may have a 70-something uh, percent chance uh, for a fluoroquinolone. And so it's just a tool that we can look at and say, okay, what's the best option to use empirically to treat this organism that's going to give us the best chance of success um, when we don't know exactly what's growing or we don't know what the susceptibility patterns are? So I have never heard of an antibiogram before, and I just had to Google it. And if any of our listeners want to, it is super interesting. So it's, I'm going to be like looking at this for a while. You can do some really neat uh, things with antibiograms too. You could, 
you know, usually we just look at total isolates at a facility in a given time period, but you can get down to the specifics of, you know, what about just in my intensive care units or what about if we're looking at only blood cultures or only urine cultures? And because, you know, every geographic location, every specific facility kind of has different uh, trends in their resistance rates and then, you know, kind of the types of organisms that are growing. So pretty neat Very tool. Cool. Yes, definitely the, the ID tool uh, that we use either as uh, physician providers or uh, uh, antimicrobial stewardship pharmacists or pharmacists in general. So it's the one, uh, the one key piece of information that we have. I tell people when I talk about it is like, we can look up anything just like Sarah did on our computer or our phone and get an answer before you can even think about it. But we still have to wait for the microbes to grow for the most part. Now we're starting to get a little bit better with our uh, uh, genetic testing, rapid testing and everything else, but we still can't detect every piece of uh, genetic information that could lead to resistance to a particular antimicrobial. So we're still waiting, you know, sometimes 48 to 72 hours. So we have to know the best antibiotics to give to somebody. So this leads to a little bit of a, um, a, a conundrum for us, right? Because something like sepsis, let's talk about sepsis. You want to start broad antibiotics. And so you're on big gun antibiotics, like you're out elephant gun hunting, right? Um, and then but you also want to use it as narrow as possible to try to not lead to resistance. So how does an antimicrobial stewardship uh, pharmacist kind of help places reconcile those major differences? And, and what happens if you get nothing on cultures? How do you know what to stop and what to change to? Because obviously cultures aren't perfect. Yeah, that's a great question. And you know, one of the crux of our positions and the biggest thing is just take into account risk factors and likelihood of certain types of infections. And so that can be, you know, has the patient been hospitalized in the past 90 days? Do they have, you know, exposure to some healthcare that could potentially cause some more resistant organisms? Have they received broad spectrum antibiotics in the past? Uh, a big one that I like to look at that, you know, is overlooked sometimes, especially, you know, when you look at newer trainees is what's the patient's past culture data? You know, has the patient grown a certain bug before? Um, you know, if so, then that kind of perks your ears up and lets you know, you know, that's something that you may want to cover for. And so really it's just taking into account all those risk factors and seeing, you know, based off of those, what may or may not be needed. You know, maybe the patient doesn't need coverage for MRSA and has no risk factors for that. And so, you know, why would, why would we add an additional agent on for that if there's no real risk that that's, or very low risk that that's present? Um, and, and again, uh, another great point is, like you said, when the cultures come back as growing nothing. And so, you know, everybody kind of has their own approach to that situation. You know, some who are more maybe aggressive with antibiotics uh, would want to just keep it on broad spectrum as long as possible. But I really think if, if you do a good job of culturing and of a good patient workup, you can kind of deduce that some of your certain causes that are being covered with broad spectrum antibiotics aren't going to be there, you know, so for instance, with Staph aureus is a really good example. <clears throat> you know, typically if it's present and we're culturing, it's gonna pop up on culture. And so, you know, if it's not there by day two, day three, and some people may argue even earlier, you're probably safe to discontinue therapy for that. You know, that's not really much of a concern. And so it's just a matter of, again, taking in patient risk and kind of like you said, threading the needle between covering broad enough to be sure we're giving the patient the best chance of success, but not just blasting them with as many antibiotics as possible. Yeah, so your, your uh, 
obviously you're speaking right into my world, but I'm really interested to see what Sarah thinks of all this stuff because uh, this is a, a different world for uh, for her. So uh, she may have some questions for you. It is. You're you're like blowing my mind today. I'm learning so much stuff. I love to learn new things. So, um, oh gosh, where do I start? Um, so I know we have a lot of medical providers that listen to our podcast um, and, you know, this antimicrobial or antibiotic resistant um, issue that we've been having is kind of a big thing. Um, what advice or resources would you have for anybody out there that would have questions or, or need help? Yeah, I'd say, you know, I'm going to put a shameless plug in for Nebraska ASAP. <laughs> our website has a lot of good resources, um, but not just us. AHRQ is an organization that has a lot of good stewardship resources. Of course, the CDC is probably the number one go-to for all levels of familiarity with infectious disease and resistance. They put out a report every handful of years um, that covers resistance and, you know, best prescribing practices, even from a patient perspective, like what should your expectations be when you go to a clinic and you've got a call for the sniffles. I mean, you know, the types of communication and expectations there as far as which infections uh, need antibiotics versus those which don't. So those are all really good resources to kind of look and see, um, you know, in regards to stewardship and resistance. Awesome. I will, I'll drop links in the show notes for those that want to check out some of those resources. That's super helpful. Um, what other questions do I have? I really am curious about, um, do you practice pronouncing drug names? <laughs> Ooh, that's, a, that's a good question. Um, I would say if I'm going to be given a presentation or like being talking to somebody where I need to know for sure, I, I definitely do. I at least want to run it through in my head. Um, and so, you know, there are a lot, a lot of drugs that have a lot of complex names and uh, pronunciations and there's some hotly debated uh, pronunciations even for simple names so um, yeah it's definitely important to especially if you're going to be the drug expert that you've got to know how these are, are said and how they're pronounced. I think another thing is is where are these marketing companies that come up with the names for these things? I mean, it's it's it, some of them are insane what the, their names are. I, I you know realizing the generic names actually sometimes give you a clue to what the drug is, but the mm. trade names they're just from all over the place. Yeah, somebody's daughter's third cousin who like had a really cool name, like we should flap that in there somehow, or you know like hey I, I discovered this molecule, so we should. In, include my name or my uh, family's name in there somehow. Let's just put some extra letters on the end of it so it sounds cool. Yeah. <laughs> what is the what's the craziest drug name you've had to learn how to pronounce? Oh, that's a good question. I don't know if it's the craziest, but I'll say just because it's on the top of the mind uh, with the monoclonal antibodies for COVID nineteen. You know, all of the, the MAB drugs, as we call them, you know, most people, it's like the BAM drug or the MAB drug. So we've had BAM-Lenivimab and Edisevimab and Casarivimab, Mdevimab, Citrovimab. And it's just so many MABs and so many uh, syllables there that you have to try to be sure you're pronouncing them right. Especially when you've got a, a Southern accent like me, you've got to <laughs> try to make sure that you don't <laughs> completely mess the names up. Yeah, I know every time we have you on for one of our webinars and you're talking about these drugs, like all of us are chatting in the background, like, how does he pronounce them so well? 
every time we I just butcher it <laughs> I think at this, at this point I've probably said it so many times that it's I, I could just sleep through it <laughs> <laughs> another thing that I'm sure has made your job as a pharmacist super mm -hmm. interesting is the fact that all of your MAB drugs are now advertised on TV so that has to probably have changed being a pharmacist a little bit because back before you had direct to consumer marketing, the only way you could hear about these really was from your providers or whatever. But now everything that makes money and is expensive is advertised on TV. And, but there's just as effective probably older drugs that don't get advertised. So how do we convince consumers that, hey, yeah, you could spend $20,000 on this drug a year, but you have the same outcome for a drug that maybe is $200 a year? Yeah, no, uh, I, that's a topic that I think is pretty heavily debated. People have strong feelings. I, I'm not a huge fan of direct-to-consumer advertising. I mean, I think it's great to spread information to patients, and it's great for patients to be able to approach their provider saying, hey, I saw something about this. Tell me about that. Um, but it also puts undue pressure uh, on providers. Luckily, we don't see that a lot with antibiotics, which is great because that would be a terrible situation where you had patients come in specifically saying, I want this antibiotic. But yeah, especially with a lot of the, you know, your eczema and anti-rheumatic drugs, a lot of those monoclonal antibodies, it, I mean, it's just, if you're watching anything on TV, it's just blasted at you on the commercials. And so it's kind of a, a tricky uh, situation. The side effects always crack me up on those. <laughs> yep, really <laughs> long list, talked really quickly at the end. Yeah, we can cure your flaky skin, but you may die. <laughs> yeah hopefully not right that's a that's not our goal that's not our goal at all yeah so um you brought up the monoclonal antibody project and i know that has been a really big initiative in the state of nebraska over the last gosh what's it been like nine months yeah yeah um do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? I know a lot of things have changed in the course of those nine months, yeah, but I, I won't give a full timeline because we could be here <laughs> until 10 o'clock tonight. But um, yeah, so just for background, you know, there really at the beginning of the pandemic, there wasn't a really well proven option for our outpatients, our non hospitalized patients to help treat COVID and prevent disease progression, which was really kind of disheartening to not have any options. And so uh, there were some monoclonal antibody products that we, you know, I mentioned the names of earlier that came out and showed really promising data that, you know, up to 70% reductions in hospitalizations um, and <clears throat> progression of disease. And so through that back in November of last year is when these first started kind of getting their authorizations. And we were approached by DHHS um, ASPER to actually run a program for long-term care facility patients. And so you could imagine typically the biggest benefit was seen in the high-risk patient populations. And there's really not much more of a high-risk group than our long-term care facility patients and assisted living facility patients. And so we kind of got <clears throat> some drug uh, provided to us by the government and we're told, you know, go forth and conquer, you know, give this to as many long-term care patients as meet criteria. And so through that, we kind of started off with setting up a website to host information so people knew about the drug. You know, you can imagine at the beginning, nobody really knew much about these at all, whereas now I feel like, you know, you turn the TV on and they're in the news or, or you know, you start seeing press releases and things about them. <clears throat> 
And so we kind of set up a program like you alluded to for these long-term care facilities and have been able to give out, you know, a good bit. I think we're probably around 550 or so doses, you know, statewide to long-term care facility patients and assisted living facility patients. And, you know, kind of through looking back and looking at the data we've seen, we think that it has had an impact that we've got lower hospitalization rates in these patients. Uh, and at least anecdotally, the patients tend to be really positive about therapy and say that they can tell, you know, that it helped them. Uh, so that's an important thing too. And it's kind of given me an appreciation, you know, hearing the, the patients and the staff at the facilities say, you know, hey, we feel like we're always kind of forgotten. And, you know, we fall through the cracks. And so it's nice to know that we've got people who are looking out specifically for our populations. And so it's been a really rewarding uh, project. And one that yeah. we still continue. Yeah, it's, it's been really awesome, you know, working on the ICAP team with you and ASAP on this project. And it's just really a great example of how different teams can collaborate and, um, you know, pull this together very quickly. Yeah, yeah, we 100% could not do it without ICAP. So for the listeners, ICAP receives the reports of positive cases throughout the state, and then they can share that with us so that we can reach out to these facilities. Because again, the facilities, they're, they're trying to just tread water at this point and do all of the reporting and infection control things. Uh, and so they don't have time to even think about therapies that might, could potentially be beneficial in their patients. And so because of ICAP having those direct lines of communication and given the reports to us, we're able to prospectively reach out and kind of funnel them to our process, which has been really helpful. On a given day, how many facilities do you think you have outreach to and how many uh, you know, humans do you touch and maybe be able to help from your, from your location here? Yeah, I would say right now, uh, looking, you know, with the Delta wave, we're looking at 10 to 15 facilities a day each of which can have anywhere from one to, I don't know, five or just depends patients that meet criteria. Um, I think I was actually just looking at data earlier. In the last week, we have contacted, I think, in the neighborhood of like 50 to 70 different facilities. And so just a, a lot of outreach, a lot of discussing uh, with those patients. So that's a huge impact that you can make just by having this whole system set up, uh, which is tremendous, I think, for the residents of um, pretty much, this is just Nebraska, right? You don't do anything over to Iowa, do you? We have. We've done some to Iowa and down into Kansas. I've talked to facilities in Kansas as well. Um, I think that those are the only three states. Uh, you know, it kind of started as, even though it was a Nebraska thing, we, we had the supplies, we had the logistics. Uh, you know, we weren't going to exclude other states, um, especially, I mean, if you look at like right across the river in Iowa, those patients are probably going to present to our local hospitals as well. And so by helping them and potentially reducing um, hospitalizations in that patient group, you're helping reduce the burden on the, the hospitals. That's very cool. I know you've, you've impacted a lot of lives with that project. Um, I know, well, I've heard that those monoclonal antibodies are now available for prophylactic treatment. Is that correct? Yeah, one of them is in particular. It's the Regen Cove. It's the Regeneron product. Um, it can be given to patients who have a uh, close contact with somebody who's positive um, and who is either unvaccinated or immunocompromised or taking immunosuppressive medication. So again, that really high-risk patient population um, and so it's a really good way to help kind of prevent cases and prevent um, 
progression uh, and you know development of symptoms. Great, great. Uh, that's definitely uh, needed at this time for sure. Is there anything else that you can think on that we haven't touched on that you like? You're sitting there and you're like, I do this every day, and you guys haven't asked about it. Um, I think those are really that's kind of the name of the game so far. I mean. Other than outside of just long-term cares and acute care, I, I try to reach out and help with outpatient facilities as well. I know I've joined uh, Sarah's webinar for the dental facilities before and tried to talk about um, antibiotic use in dental facilities, uh, and, you know, as well. But that's kind of been the, the main parts of my job so far as just uh, helping with the hospital's long-term care facilities and now monoclonal antibody projects. I know we as providers frequently reach out to you and your colleagues whenever we need help with particular dosing with things maybe we don't use every day or drug-drug interactions, which is huge uh, these days with uh, all the different uh, medications that patients are on, especially if they're on some immunosuppressives like in a transplant type setting or something. So we certainly appreciate that. And if we have to check any more QT intervals, we'll probably uh, have to uh, scream uh, since it seems like every drug belongs to QT interval anymore. That's the truth, yeah. So Andrew, we really appreciate what you do in the background. And for all of our listeners out there, if you work with an ID pharmacist, give them a high five the next time you see them. Tell them you appreciate them. Well, I appreciate that. <laughs> I agree. They definitely make our job a lot easier having them around and uh, uh, having the knowledge base that they have. We might know a lot of the clinical stuff and maybe know this is the drug that we want to use, but actually how to use it um, or what the alternatives might be because of some situation that's going on is where I think the ID pharmacists really have a huge role. Yeah. And I'll say one thing that's interesting, uh, you know, seeing through the years with pharmacy in general, not just ID pharmacists, is, you know, it's like the one, or not the one, but one of the professions that kind of, we touch a lot of different groups. And so, you know, we have close interactions with physicians through verification of orders and talking about dosing and those things. And, you know, a lot of interaction with frontline nursing staff, as far as, you know, preparing the drug, sending it out to the floor, making sure that, you know, processes make sense and are feasible to be implemented. Uh, you know, administration uh, of the hospitals and things. So it's, I feel like we're in a unique position to help kind of be the, the like oil or the grease between all the cogs and make sure everything runs smoothly and, you know, consider things that maybe uh, other people ha haven't thought of. So I know I was always really appreciative of pharmacists when I was in clinical practice. Um, you know, working in a dental facility, we often prescribe medications, but um, sometimes patients don't bring in their full medication list with them. <laughs> so I've gotten quite a few calls from pharmacists saying, well, there may be uh, some sort of medication interaction here. Can we think about looking at something different? So really appreciate that. So um, you're relatively new to Nebraska and you're uh, an SEC fan. So have you, have you made it down to Memorial Stadium yet to see a game? I have not. That was on my list as soon as so we moved here in 2019. Um, and that was my plan. We were going to go that fall and it, we just never got around to actually making a game. And then last year with the pandemic, um, don't know if it's going to happen this year, but definitely it's on my list uh, of things that I would like to do. It may be if cases calm down and we get to looking better from a epidemiology standpoint, I, I could catch a game later in the season for sure. 
a lot of the schools in the south are a little bit geographically closer. So uh, have you been able to go to some some away games down there that I, 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 there's some stadiums down there that I would love to go watch games at? Yeah. So I haven't since I've been here in Nebraska, but, you know, through school, I was able to go to Vanderbilt. We went to Vanderbilt game. Um, it was like a Thursday night game, I think. Uh, That's so probably easy to get tickets for a Vanderbilt game. It, well, it was very easy. <laughs> I, I want to go to Death Valley at night. Yeah, I know. I, I've not made any of those big trips. My dad and I, that's kind of on our uh, bucket list of things we want to do is when things settle down, start going to I – mean, even if we just go to one away game a year. I'd love to go to College Station, uh, see Texas A&M in their stadium or, you know, uh, make the trip out to Alabama. Even though I'm not a football fan, I – knew a guy and his big thing was once a year he would go to an away game with his buddies and every year it was a different stadium in their conference so he's trying to hit all of the different stadiums so yeah. I thought that was really cool <laughs> yeah with all the conference expansion at that point you're looking at a good long while to get to all of them <laughs> yeah it was a it was a quite a long process multiple yeah. years so you have any uh any questions for us that you that you would like to ask Sarah's great at giving answers I'm not so good myself <laughs> so um Sarah I know you do some like paranormal investigation and go ahead and stop me if somebody else has asked this on a previous episode but what's your like hallmark piece of evidence that you've got like the one aha where you're like this this is it this is what you know this is what I do this for that is a really good question um oh gosh well it depends on the type of evidence. We've gotten some really good EVP evidence, which is audio evidence, um, you know, full sentences that we didn't hear during our investigation, which is really super cool. Um, I think the probably the coolest piece of evidence that we have documented is um, we were sitting in a hallway and somebody had their FLIR thermal camera. And I felt something like cold behind me. I felt a cold spot. And so they came down and took a picture and there was a cold footprint on the floor right behind me. I thought that was really cool. I would have to leave immediately. <laughs> <laughs> Just be completely out. Yeah, we, we've, uh, we'll see like some of the paranormal shows on TV and stuff, but it's always really interesting to hear from like people who are doing it not on TV and are not getting necessarily paid for doing it. So it's really yeah. interesting. Yeah, you kind of have to be wary of the shows. Um, a lot of it is... Yeah. You know, they they roll in for a few hours and film the whole episode. Yeah, so. I always get a kick when like it, it plays a snippet of audio and then they put words on the screen and you're like, yeah, I guess it says that now that you you pointed out to me. But like I yeah. wouldn't have thought that I would have thought it was like somebody coughing or something. <laughs> so it's yeah. probably good to get to go back to like, you know, your house or base and, and get to listen to those and see like what you think it actually says. Yeah, that's a really good point you bring up, Andrew. Like when we're reviewing evidence or if we hear something we will specifically not call out what we think it said so we don't bias the other person right and we'll get everybody like okay we all heard this everybody we're going to talk about what we heard <laughs> without that bias so it's kind of it's kind of fun to throw some real science in there and validate experiences you guys are giving me goosebumps just talking about this <laughs> i'm going to get you in a haunted location someday dr Sterling. I, I, if we have somebody in front of me and somebody behind me that's like alive, that would be ideal. Okay. Probably make <laughs> that happen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Um, Andrew, what are you reading or binge watching anything right now? I'm curious. Ooh, I am actually not right now. I'm kind of between. So I generally, I, I really enjoy reading, but I just haven't had a ton of time to read recreationally, or I just haven't, I guess it hadn't been as high on my priority list. But I did start uh, listening to audiobooks back, you know, last year, commuting in and out of work. I have a fairly decent commute. And so I was able to kind of, you know, go through a lot of good books. Uh, but since I've been working from home, majority, the majority of the time, I haven't been able to listen to audiobooks as much. You know, typically by the time we finish work at nighttime, you know, get dinner ready, get the kid uh, in bed and, you know, get to spend time with her. Um, but I do have the Wheel of Time series by Robert Jordan. It's on my list. Um, it, it, it's, I've downloaded, I think, oh, I think are there 14 books or 15 books. I think I've got like 11 or 12 of them downloaded. I got to get the last two and then that'll be my plan. Um, maybe, maybe through paternity leave. My wife uh, is due at the end of December. So maybe when I'm on paternity leave that month, I can plug in and listen to some of those, but it's on my list. Congratulations. I think I'm still on book 11 after about six or seven years because they take a long time. Yeah, they're yeah, they they're so comp they're so complicated with so many characters. It's so hard to keep it straight, but it's it's so good. So good. Yeah. It's one so, of those hallmarks like you got to read it if you're, you know, if you enjoy any type of uh, fictional writing. So there's been a lot of talk about a, a, a series coming out with it at some point in time, too. But I, I, I know that they did some initial casting, but I think this was all happening around COVID. So I don't know what's yeah. happened since that time. So um, but it would be it would be great to see. Yeah, that's awesome. I wrote it down. I'm going to look this series up. I've never heard of it before. It's by Robert Jordan. Yeah. Very OK, good. very good. So um, thanks for talking about everything today. If, if um, we have some young listeners that maybe are like, I, I like healthcare, but I'm not sure that I want to be at the bedside because I you know I, I you know some of that stuff just isn't for me. And you know, what kind of things would, should they look at for as far as, hey, maybe pharmacy is where I want to go. Um, uh, what advice would you give them? Yeah, I would say, you know, you could really reach out to almost anywhere um, and, and ask for the pharmacy. I mean, if you want to look at it like a retail setting, uh, you know, go in and talk to the local pharmacist and say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm interested in this potentially. I want to see what it's like. You know, could I shadow you for a day? Could I just, you know, watch what you do? Or, you know, for a couple hours here and there, or even if it's the hospital, you know, doing something similar where if you can get in contact with them, say, can I come watch and see what you do? Uh, most every pharmacist I think that I've ever interacted with just loves educating and loves, you know, spreading their passion for pharmacy. And so I couldn't imagine any pharmacist turning that down. So I think if you really want to get some information and see what it's like, you know, get out there, talk with pharmacists and just get to uh, actually shadow them to see. And how many years is school after high school? It is seven or eight years, depending on the program. So typically you'll do undergrad, which is either three or four years, uh, and then pharmacy school itself. Some programs have an accelerated three-year track there. Um, and then, so I guess you technically could get out in six, um, but most are going to be a four-year program. So, Very cool. Well, is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you really want to squeeze into this episode? I do not think so. I think that we have kind of covered everything uh, there is to know about me and hopefully about pharmacy and hopefully people have a better uh, sense of, you know, what we do and what we were able to, to get done. Yeah, it was great. Thanks. And if, if uh, COVID ever settles down to the point where I feel safe to go to another football game, I'll make sure to uh, let you know so we can get you down there. Yeah. I will take you up on that for sure. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Andrew, for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. I appreciate you having me. This has been a really fun experience and a, a good way to, to kind of take a break and get to take a step back and I guess look uh, and kind of appreciate what we do day in and day out. All right. So for our listeners, go ahead and give us a like and a follow on Twitter and we will catch you on the next episode of Dirty Drinks. Bye, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Dirty Drinks. Don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and share it with your friends if they enjoy Dirty Drinks.